Hello and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Ellie Betts. Don't be alarmed. I haven't locked Christina in a dungeon again. We just have something a little extra to share with you this month. And we're going to start with a little excerpt from the Jonathan Taylor interview. This little excerpt was cut from the Jonathan Taylor interview because Christina and Jonathan went off on a very long tangent about their love of ghost stories. Christina just couldn't help herself. With me today is Jonathan Taylor. Welcome to The Writer's Mindset. Thank you, Christina, for asking me um, to be here. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay, yeah. I mean, um, I'm an author, an editor, and a lecturer, and a critic. I teach creative writing at Leicester University. I've taught creative writing for two decades now in university contexts. I also, and sort of primarily, see myself as a writer, obviously, and I've written novels, two novels, a memoir called Take Me Home, which came out in 2007, and a couple of poetry collections. So I tend to kind of write across forms and genres. So, yeah, and and I also write critically, um, as a lot of academics do. Have you ever heard that phrase that we all write about the same themes over and over? I think it's like the same three themes or something, that if you distill everything down, it's the exact same thing told in a different way. Yes, absolutely. And it's, there's a few theories like that, you know, um, uh, sort of, I suppose, what you might loosely call structuralist theories or formalist theories over the last hundred years, where, where yes, we recycle the same stories, um, but just in, in different contexts, clearly with different, sometimes with different outcomes and, and so on and so forth. And, and you do see, you do see that there is that kind of element of it. And it's one of the challenges. And you'll know that as, as a, a, a fantasy writer, one of the great challenges of any writing, but particularly genre fiction is how do you use these tropes, these conventions, these narratives um, that have been set up but do something just slightly different with them um, how do you kind of take them um, and renew them and and it's really hard I think for a genre fiction writer it's especially hard oh yeah I think my background in women's fiction and romance made it easier because that influenced it so yes I'm writing fantasy but it's hard. it's actually about relationships it's mm. about mother-daughter, it's about friendship, it's about romance. And mm. so that's kind of at the core of it. And it's because the readers love these characters that they keep turning the page. And some of the reviews comment on the world building. And that was the part of the story I was the most afraid of doing because I'd never done it in that much depth before. And my editor, Alexa, she was like, you need to know more detail now because it will make your life easier further down the line. And I'm really glad she pushed me on that first book because now I have less work to do, essentially. <laughs> yeah, that, but that's fascinating you should say it, Christina. I just think that's really good writing, that the relationships and the characters come first, you know, uh, as Alexander Pope said, you know, that it's the subject is being human. Even if you're writing about robots or vampires or, or, or computers, in the end, the subject is, is what it means to be human. That's kind of the centre of all writing in many ways. Even if you're writing, you know, Lord of the Rings, it's all actually all about human beings, really. You know. Yeah, my big influences when I was working on 
and kind of planning the Afterlife Calls series, was that kind of late 90s, early 2000s fantasy where these people happen to have magical powers, but the center was actually the impact it had on their relationships and on their work lives and all this stuff. And I kind of missed that watching fantasy shows. Now you don't see it as much. It feels like there's more of a focus on the magic and then everything else is secondary. And I wanted to go back to those things that were such an influence and such a comfort to me when I was younger and have it almost feel like when you're reading it, like it's a warm hug on a cold day. And yeah, these horrific things are happening to the characters. And I'm sorry if you're listening to this and a fan of the books, horrific things are going to happen to the characters, but that's life. And there's a power to the characters overcoming these horrific things and finding your way out because it reminds us that we can overcome things and we're certainly never going to have to face anything as horrific as what characters in a book are going to have to face in mm. a lot of cases, particularly when it's fantasy or sci-fi or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've been, um, like many people, we've all been watching Squid Game recently, the Netflix series. And, you know, people talk about world building in that and people talk about the the games and whatever but in the end what really gets you is um the relationships between two or three of the characters and that's that's what carries you along you know and it has to be the center i think i think you know and, and maybe part you know i obviously most of what i write is realist or magical realist but i i, I think that's just as as you say just as relevant for sf and fantasy and horror as it is for anything else i mean the shining you know by stephen king the center of that really is um the boy's relationship with his father and the father's own nervous breakdown the horror is just a kind of manifestation of what's what's going on within the family. And Stephen King, I think of all writers is aware of that, that really the horror is just what's happening psychologically. That can be scarier sometimes, I think, that psychological side of it. And if you look at films like A Quiet Place, a lot of it is the absence of something that is the scary part. It's not the existence of something. Yeah, you know, the aliens in A Quiet Place exist. It's the fact that most of that film, they don't speak because mm. they can't like literally these aliens could hear a pin drop so they've got to be so careful and they set up the stakes beautifully in the opening scene because this kid has a toy that makes a noise and someone puts the battery in it for the kid the toy i think it's like a um fire engine or something this toy makes a noise once the kid's gone like that and it sets up the genre. It sets up the stakes. It's such a great film if you like horror and thriller. It's so good. I, I class it as horror, but apparently it's technically a thriller. So at this point, I'm like, why do I bother reading genres? Because I can't oh, tell the difference. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I must I must watch that. I've not I've not actually seen it. I've heard of it. Um, yeah, and and those tiny details matter so much, don't they? Um, especially in horror. I was thinking, you know, going back to The Shining, I was thinking like actually. One in the in the book, as opposed to the film, um, in the book that the scariest chapter I think is just one chapter, and it's and actually it's Stephen King at his very best, where for a whole chapter, you know, four or five pages, um, it's just a boy looking at this um, fire hose at the end of the corridor and wondering if it's moving, um, and that's all it is. There is no, wow. there is there is, and the whole thing is just a description of is it moving or isn't it. Um, and to me, my hair stood on the back of my neck. All the all the blood coming out of elevators. Yeah, right. You know. Um, but this idea that maybe it's moving, maybe it isn't. 
um, and being able to sustain that for four or five chapters. So sometimes I think horror is just all about the tiny things, the kind of little details, the symbols. Oh, it is. I've been going back through and analysing some horror stuff I watch with my boyfriend to help with the ghost call because it's not really horror. I try not to make it too scary, but it's useful to see the devices that they use and the tiny ways that they build suspense. Mm. And I look at certain things and I'm like, that's amazing. And mm. it, it, for me, as someone who likes to get to the point really quickly, it's hard to add in these tiny details and build up really slowly because I'm quite a blunt person. But it's so effective. And I rewrote the subplot of my second fantasy book, The Mummy's Curse, to try and make it a little bit more subtle and I'm really pleased with how it turned out because the first version just felt ridiculously rushed and all the beta readers commented on it so I ended up extending it and it became about a 10,000 word subplot weaved in with everything else that's going on and it starts off so simply that she completely dismisses this haunting as messy builders on the building site she's working in Mm. and then she slowly starts to think she's going mad because there are signs of a haunting and she can't tell there's a ghost there even though she can see ghosts Oh wow, that's amazing! It reminds me of—I um, mean, it's that—it's that idea, isn't it? That um, whether it's true or not, the idea that some often that what you don't see in a horror story is more scary than what you do. Yeah. Um, and I think there is some truth in that. I mean, obviously, it's—it's it's a common opinion, but but um, there is some truth in that. And uh, the you know one of the um, uh, great masters of that is the right the 50s 60s writer Shirley Jackson and in the haunting of Hill House you see almost nothing you see almost nothing it's all, almost like an experiment in how far can I push this idea and it makes it terrifying and the 1964 film of the haunting is which is which draws on on the novel is the same that you see nothing you never see anything any ghost, you never see any um, monster, but my God, it's terrifying. That takes real skill to be able to pull off, though, for nothing to happen and have the writer still bricking it. Absolutely. Well, it's, uh, I'm, I'm in awe of you, Christina, writing a, a ghost stories because it's always been, I've always said it's one of my great ambitions as a writer. We all have, we have to have ambitions as writers, don't we? You know, we, we have to kind of want, want to do something. And my great ambition as a writer is to write a really good ghost story because I think they're really hard. And, and yet, yeah, and yeah they yet, are. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And, and amongst um, writers, especially short fiction writers, ghost stories can be the best. They can be the, 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 the most uh, wonderful, wonderful, um, pieces of writing but that's so hard because what you're setting out to do is amazing isn't it you're setting out to affect your reader physically um it's what used to be called in the in the 19th century sensation fiction i.e you create a sensation in your in your reader um and and that's that's so hard isn't it you're actually trying to scare them you know in realist fiction all you're trying to do is you know maybe um uh you know make them sad make convey sadness happiness whatever but in in um in horror fiction or ghost stories you're actually trying to kind of make people's hair stand on end Um, yeah i never set out to make it a super scary ghost story because i was um quite scared of things when i was younger but i wanted to build the atmosphere and i got notes back from my editor and she was like you could have warned me this bit's really creepy i'm like sorry I didn't 
mean to. I'm like trying to make it. I'm trying to make you, like you say, it's that sensation fiction. I'm trying to make you feel it. I didn't expect to give you nightmares, mm. but I might have done. Well, that's good. She um, did admit to being afraid of um, the particular trope that I had included. Um, so that kind of made it worse because it there's a creepy child in it. And that trope just kind of affects that. <laughs> and it is so subjective, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, ghost stories and horror stories that, that actually I was um, uh, talking for enough a few weeks ago to to some students about um, ghost stories and the uncanny. And I showed them a bit of The Shining, which I do think is a, is both, is a masterpiece, both as a book and, and a film. And a lot of them said, oh, I don't find it scary. And I was like, first time I saw this, I was terrified. So it is subjective. And maybe it is that is to do with what you were saying, that there's particular tropes that we all kind of, um, latch onto. Um, so some people are terrified of mirrors, some people of spiders, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think those things change over time as well. Because when I did media studies at A level, we studied the horror genre. Ironically, we kind of half asked watching it, and our teacher would skip to the good bits so that she didn't have to rewatch them and she'd analyze the good bits and skip the slower bits. But we still did quite well, so it obviously worked. But like, Imagine a bunch of 18-year-olds sitting in a room watching a black-and-white silent movie for half an hour. Most of the class were laughing because Nosferatu is not scary when you can see the special effects and it's in black and white and there's not really any sound and, you know, it doesn't have the same impact. But in the 20s, people were terrified of it. And then I remember a few people in the class didn't find Psycho scary. They didn't class that as horror at all. And there was, again, some people laughing in it. And I don't know if that was just their response to horror or they genuinely thought it was bad. But it just shows you how these different definitions of what is scary changes over time. And like I say, I think that's why ghosts, ghost stuff like The Conjuring Universe and The Haunting Anthology are so popular right now. And that was obviously a trend before the pandemic, but it's even more prevalent now particularly in fiction and and in indie fiction but a lot of the ghost stuff that i'm certainly seeing anyway um it's more the cozy side of it so yes these people are dealing with ghosts but you still kind of get that warm fuzzy feeling and there's a lot of sarcasm thrown in and it's more character focused and maybe there's a mystery that they're trying to solve rather than they're being haunted and they're probably going to get killed at the end so it's a little bit of a happier turn of events because we all kind of need that at the moment yeah, yeah. Going back to the laughter, uh, actually, some often people laugh because they are scared. There is a real something I'm particularly fascinated in um, with is there is a real connection between laughter and horror, and that many horror films are also comedies, and many comedies are also actually quite horrific. Especially, I think, especially in Britain, um, that a lot of our old sitcoms are actually quite grim in many ways. So I actually think there's a real close connection between those two things. I, I teach um, at, at university, I, I, I teach a course on comedy writing, which I love. I mean, I always say at the start, look, I'm an academic. My job is not to be funny, um, but I'm going to teach you about um, comedy, about laughter and so on and so forth. And one of the things I talk about is that kind of the way in which comedy is often based on horror. 
and violence and things like that, that we laugh at what we're scared about. Because what else can you do? If you don't laugh, you'll cry, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Would you say comedy is a particularly hard genre to write? Yeah, well, it's normally seen as very hard. Um, and I wonder if it's a genre in many ways, although I'm, ne I'm never quite clear what the word genre means anyway. But, but um, I wonder if it is a genre or if it's a mode of writing. I mean, when I write, I mean, a lot of people have said, I'm not, it's very hard to kind of diagnose your own style, but a lot of people have said about my style that, that what I write is basically dark comedy or tragedy comedy or, or that mixes kind of horror and comedy and laughter and, and so on and so forth. And I think that just reflects kind of my own view of the world, that actually you often see people in funerals laughing. Um, and you often see people at parties crying. So I, I think that mixture of different emotions is kind of just how I, how I see the world. So is it hard to write comedy? I think it's hard to write stand-up because, again, like we were talking about horror, your job is to affect your, your listener in that, in that sense directly and get them to laugh without the meaning to. It's quite difficult to write sitcom in the sense, especially sitcom that's got a studio audience because you're just queuing jokes. And I find that hard. Um, maybe it's jokes that I find hard. I, I, can, I can write comedy, but, but that's sometimes slightly different than just writing a stream of jokes. Uh, years ago, I remember two or three of uh, students set up a comedy club uh, at my old university uh, before I came to Leicester and uh, were always trying to persuade me to do stand-up. And I say, absolutely not. That is the one thing I will never do because I think that is the most scary and the most difficult of all forms of writing. Oh, like, yeah, I've done stand-up. Stand oh, have you, Christina? Okay. Yeah, I won't do it again. I won't do it again. <laughs> my kind of fear level of public speaking is, well, I've done stand-up, I can do the rest. But I actually did it as part of my creative writing degree because we did like a presentation thingy at the end. And like we could read things or we could perform things. And I thought, fuck it, I'm going to do some comedy. And don't know if I'll do it again, but I certainly found it easier to do it when I'd planned out what I was going to say. I attempted to wing it the second time I did it and that didn't go so well. And I'll be honest, I don't think I'm particularly funny. Um... I leaned into the comedy in The Mummy's Curse because it's a mummy back from the dead. It's inherently a funny premise, right? And the mummy has a very, very, very acerbic sense of humor. And that really worked. But I literally said to my beta readers, I need you to tell me one bit's funny so that I know I'm actually funny and I'm not just trying too hard. And that is one of the problems, isn't it, with comedy is that people just try too hard. And you see that on a lot of kind of contemporary sitcoms where they're just trying too hard for the laughs. And I think that's why I don't write pure comedy that I write. Um, I mean, there, there are other reasons, obviously, but I don't write pure comedy because I'm not, I don't want to kind of um, force the reader to laugh. What, I mean, ideally what I want is that people read my stuff and not sure whether they should laugh or cry. And I know that one or two things I've done have been effective in that respect. And I see that as success because I honestly, I honestly think that is just life. 
that people just don't know whether to laugh or cry all the time. So. Oh, yeah. And I think it's important that fiction does reflect that as well, because it's when you see things in a book, on TV, on film, it normalizes it. And then you're like, oh, OK, this isn't such a so bad anymore. It feels, like I say, more normal. Yeah. And also, like, in fiction, the writing that I have problems with, which is not to say I don't like some, some pieces like this, but, but the, the writing, it's monotonal, where it's either, as you say, entirely comedy, or it's entirely sad. A writer I know called Charles Boyle, who once said to me, oh, so much contemporary realist fiction, literary fiction, has this kind of atmosphere of what he called exquisite doom about it. It does. And that sort of annoys me, really. It's like, I, I want variation. That, I think that's why I love Dickens so much, because, because there's so much kind of tonal variation in it. You know, one minute you're laughing, next minute you're crying, the next minute you're angry, and so on and so forth. And that's the kind of writing I like, the, the sort of more polytonal stuff, where there's lots of different emotions going on at the same time and, and the kind of just the kind of uniformly serious um i am writing a very serious novel um with very serious themes kind of grates on me a bit it does me as well it actually took me until this year to realize that all of my favorite books films and tv shows are cross genre they all have very varying tones they're not all bleak they're not all comedic they're not all dramatic they're not all fantastical they have all these ups and downs and the only really underlying um theme if you will is the fact that they all have romance in that's the mm. only thing they all have in common like you compare the mummy the brandon fraser film with some of the fantasy I've been reading, there's literally nothing in common with them. Or with some of my favourite like romance writers, nothing in common other than the fact there's a really good romance story that's actually quite three-dimensional because The Mummy has a very good romance in it for saying it's a 1999 action film. That's fascinating. Why do you think that is, Christina? I have no idea. It could be an attention span thing because if it's constantly going up and down, it holds my attention more. And I think it's just because I have such a wide range of interests as well. If it can hit multiple buttons, it's going to keep my attention more. Like The funny thing is, I had no interest in history at school. And then just before I started my MA in 2013, I started watching historical documentaries and it's been a rabbit hole since then. And currently my rabbit hole is now Victorian makeup Ooh. and the, just the weird, stupid things that the Victorians did, like grinding up mummies and then taking them as medicine. Wow. Yes, dead people. That's Medicinal cannibal. Cannibalism <laughs> in Victorian times was a thing. That's remarkable. I actually didn't know that. That's remarkable, actually. That would it, it's be great material. It, uh, yeah, exactly. I don't know if I can make it into book stuff, but I think I'll probably use it as a form of marketing for the series because the Egyptian theme is going to carry on throughout the series. And I've already done one blog post on um, weird Egyptian mummy things. So I might do one on like a crossover between the Victorians and mummies and then do one on the weird Victorian makeup and skincare and stuff because like they literally were just putting acid on their bodies and washing their hair with egg yolk once a month and just no just yeah. no it's fascinating isn't it i mean I, I i i think the word research gets 
misused and overused um, in all sorts of contexts. But actually, I am a writer who believes that you find stuff out and you write about it. You know, but there was there is this amazing varied material out there that you kind of find out, and then the material kind of decides on its own sort of form. So, what you've just told me, I could imagine, would make a great poem. Um, actually, you know, about um, the Egyptian, um, about the mummies being ground up, um, dead bodies being ground up and, and used as medicine. I think, I think that, that, that's amazing. So I think the, the material finds its kind of the form that it finds. But I am de- I'm definitely someone who, who believes it, that I want to learn things. Yeah. And that, that's the case even when I, I, I'm reading a novel. I want to find things out and learn things, you know. So actually, it's a kind of underrated part of being a fiction writer, I think, is that, is that one of the jobs is, is you actually, I mean, not, you're not teaching your writers, but you're kind of, they're learning stuff by reading. Where even if that stuff is learning about relationships or learning about psychology or, or, or whatever, that there has to be, uh, the reader has to have a new experience by reading this, has to kind of learn something by reading it. And that's that's a kind of aspect of writing, I think, that's kind of underrated in many ways. I agree. And I don't think it has to be anything complicated. One of my favourite ghost series is called Good to the Last Death. And two of the characters have this most ridiculously bizarre game and they try to outweigh each other with facts. So if you're a fan of something like QI or no such thing as a fish or just reading random things on the internet and falling down a rabbit hole, it's like the most perfect scene because they're just trying to be as gross and weird as possible. But all these facts are true. So you're learning something at the same time. And obviously either the writer is like me and just likes to know weird stuff about like mummies or you know maybe she researches them specifically for these characters but even so she's learned something the audience has learned something and it's a fun discussion down the pub yeah absolutely and and the same goes for a program that the twins our twins used to watch horrible histories for for a few years they watched horrible histories and, and one of the pleasures of that of course it's funny of course it's engaging but one of the pleasures of it is that you learn these amazing things about the past that you don't you don't get taught generally in history GCSE or A level, um, and they that's that's amazing. You know, as you say, it's it's something you can take down the pub and talk about. I think that side of history is more interesting, and that could be why I personally didn't connect with it at school. Like, I don't really care about the politicians. I might care about why they did stupid or selfish things, but for me, it's the psychology and the day to day life that's more interesting rather than the actual politics of it. And that's not even because I'm not interested in politics. It's just the humanity is more appealing, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, I switch off royalist histories on BBC Four or B- BBC One or Two. You know, I'm not interested in um, uh, Henry III particularly. I mean, you know, I'm interested to some extent. But, but what were ordinary people doing at that point in time, you know? Why are we so fixated in Britain um, on these kind of on the aristocratic royalist histories, at least in mass media, at the expense of like what was an ordinary person doing at this time? And that's why um, those series about that you get about sort of what people ate in over the twentieth century in different decades, or or what was domestic life like, or 
or what the history of this house through the last 200 years, uh, that sort of thing is more engaging to me because I want to know what everyone was doing um, on a day-to-day basis. That should be just as interesting, if not more, than what, you know, um, King Richard was doing or stuff like that. Yeah, I agree. I was watching a video this morning about the history of corsets and how the modern day corset is actually completely different to what it was in Victorian times. So trying to compare them, you know, and base opinions on the fit of modern corsets compared to something that was, you know, handmade using like different materials and stuff and assuming that because modern corsets are very restrictive, it's, you know, they're, they're so different that you kind of need that context to be able to make a judgment and most people don't think about how these items of clothing have changed over time and if you're writing like historical fiction that would be something really important to take into account mm-hmm. it's i mean I, I don't write much historical fiction i've, I've written some um, i think it is incredibly challenging to get inside because you, you're not just um, learning facts, you're not just learning about the historical periods. You're trying to kind of get inside the consciousness of people uh, jumping, you know, hundreds of years, say, to whenever. And people think differently at different times of history. People's very consciousness changes over time. No doubt in 500 years, our consciousness in the early 21st century will just seem totally alien to um, if there are people still left um, in 500 years time. I hope you enjoyed that little excerpt. If you're enjoying the Writer's Mindset podcast, check out our Facebook group. You can find it at writerscookbook.com forward slash Facebook group. We also have lots of new merch, as you can probably tell, because I'm covered in it. We will see you in May for our regularly scheduled episodes. Keep writing.